Good afternoon, ladies and gentlemen. Welcome to Identity Part 3, Blame the Enlightenment. Although that's not really fair. You shouldn't blame them, but they sort of vocalize the, they give intellectual form to the problems of identity that are arising as the modern world comes uh, into shape. So um, let's see, before I begin, something, something, something. Oh, yeah, uh, still space available in September to sign up for the classes. June sold out. And again, at some point, I'm going to have a little animoto thing on the on the classes coming up so all right so identity so remember chimpanzees you know whatever hundreds of thousands of years of evolution from our primate ancestors identity is continually reinforced and is one of the prime structuring elements of your life basically at every moment then we move into early hunter gathering societies again tricky to know exactly what was going on, but from modern surviving hunter-gathering societies and from archaeological evidence and from other studies, it looks like they were a highly egalitarian, very communally focused, friendship focused. Uh, you know, you're in small communities your whole life. You know everybody. Everybody knows you. Again, not an environment in which a lot of identity problems are likely to arise for you. <clears throat> Then we move into the agricultural revolution, which, uh, again, they tend to put the date, you know, say 10,000 years, because it's a nice, easy, round date. But it's important to remember that in 10,000 years ago, you know, 1% of the world's population is uh, in an agricultural society. It takes, you know, nine millennia or so, eight millennia before most of the world's population is living in an agrarian society, right? So it's sort of a curve. But once you start incorporating agrarian societies into the world, they slowly take over most everything. And those communities are very different from the hunter-gatherer societies. And a lot of people say, you know, it was, a, it was worse for most people to make that transition from hunter-gatherer to agriculture, which may be true, depending on, you know, there's a lot element of truth to that. There's a lot of truth to that, actually. But, you know, it kind of depends on what you're looking at and what you're measuring and so forth. But one thing that didn't change is this identity question. It's slightly more vexed because you're dealing with more people. You have strangers more often, but mostly, and this is all the other early legal codes from all over the world that you see, our societies are highly stratified and identity is enforced by law under threat of death. So again, the early Hammurabi's code has all this, um, you know, if you're, if you're a slave, if you're a freeman, if you're a nobleman, if you're a priest, right? So where you fit in society was enforced by uh, like criminal codes, basically at the, at the at sword point. And you needed to follow the rules of your um, status or you're going to be in trouble. Uh, further, most everybody, 70, 80, 90% of the population, depending on where you are, were a version of a slave. So when you're a slave, you know, identity is thrust upon you. It is not something that you get a lot of choice on. But even the aristocracy, you think, okay, those people have it made. Certainly better to be an aristocrat than a slave. However, their identity is also crucial. It's not like they got to explore a lot of like, oh, I don't want to be an aristocrat anymore. Maybe. I mean, you, this is interesting. This You get this in Buddhism later on, which we will talk about a little bit. Um, but mostly, you know, your entire identity from birth is imposed by your family and society. So, again, upper class, lower class, it doesn't matter. You know, identity is basically enforced. So not something you have a problem with, per se, because you don't have a choice in it. 
And then at some point, and I'm going to take the Western line. A little later, I'll look at the Chinese-Indian line and, you know, uh, talk about, and, and the Islamic lines, talk about how those are different. But it's roughly, you know, get the same elements mixed in a different way. But for now, I want to talk about the Western line and its evolution to where we are today. And then we'll go back and sort of look at some parallel parallel developments and other, uh, other streams of civilization. But in, in the West, it's like when... Does this identity question, when do identity questions really come to the fore? And of course, it's a slow evolution. It's a sort of a, a, a mass issue. At some point, enough people have enough freedom and enough resources and enough opportunity that the problem is identity become to the fore. <clears throat> I basically say this is the Enlightenment, hence blame the Enlightenment. But of course, they're responding to the environment around them, thinking about them and coming up with answers that often create more problems than solutions. So one way to think about this, I want to just think of examples. If you go back and you look at somebody like the Medici's, right, very famous family, they started out in re Republican Florence, and Republican is sort of a stretch of the imagination. Think oligarchic uh, Florence, and they were one of the key families. They were merchant princes. They were merchants, uh, traders, uh, lenders, and basically a sort of investment bankery type people, you know, sort of early version of this. Um, and so what do you do when you start making money, you start making good, you start amassing power? Well, they did what any smart person would do at the time. They went for principalities and they went for um, the popes. They become cardinals, become popes, become princes. This is the route to power. And they did this. They pulled this off over generations. It became several Medici popes, lots of cardinals, um, lots of princes. So they wanted a noblement and they wanted to be in the priesthood because that was where more power and more money uh, was to be found and was to be exercised. So again, so while when, when given an opportunity they tried to establish themselves in the existing hierarchy in the positions that were better. Again, the kings, the princes, uh, the counts, the, you know, you try to become a, a higher ranking aristocrat and or a pope and or a cardinal and or. So again, identity here is not, is it, is not significant as an issue because they're just trying to reinforce the existing social hierarchy. They're just trying to move slowly up. Um, and they achieved that. They actually did, did an, uh, an astonishingly good job of that. You know, you poison a few people, stab a few people, bribe a few people, and before you know it, you can be a pope too. So that program, but what it suggests is it was not, um, they knew what they wanted, they knew the identity they needed, and they knew how to get there. So it's not really a big threat to the system. In fact, if anything, they reinforced the existing system because they bought all of the identity issues and the social stratification that went along with it as given, and then they just tried to operate very efficiently within that. <clears throat> Where you start seeing the first kinds of large-scale breakage is, is when you get something like the Dutch trader. So this is just a little little later than the Medicis, but when you start getting the, the Dutch golden age there, what's happening is these traders are now operating in a world that they don't try to convert their money necessarily into uh, being kings or princes and certainly not popes because, you know, Reformation, all these issues. And this creates a new issue. And it's hard for us, again, to get our minds around this. But if 
you let's just say you're an aristocrat and it's uh you know 16th century and you're in holland and you have big land holdings and you go to one of the main port cities and here you encounter uh, a, a you know a, a nice upper middle class trading family and they are making from one ship returning from the spice islands 50 times what your all of your land holdings might return in a year or two years or 10 years. And so while you still have nobility, if you're a French noble touring and visiting or whatever, you know, the hierarchy is still there. But all of a sudden, these questions start to abound. Like, now hold on a second. Who, who has more power? Who's more important? And, you know, we're not going to let them you know, wear the clothes of the aristocrats because they could certainly afford it. Oh my goodness, what do we do now, right? Like, shoot, how do we distinguish ourselves? Because before we could do it with clothes because they certainly couldn't afford to buy the clothes that we wear, but now they can afford to buy all the clothes that we wear and then a lot more that, you know, so how do we distinguish the different classes when we have these merchant princes and notice the name merchant prince It is the notion that to be a prince is a good thing, but really to be a merchant is a really good thing. And that is a slight destabilization because also there's a lot more opportunities to be a trader, to own ships, to invest in the markets, to create, uh, you know, early versions of the factories than there are to own land because the land in Europe had been divided up at, by the 17th century for what a thousand years, 500 years. I mean, it's for, for centuries, most of the good land was already owned by particular families and by the church. And so if you wanted some land, if you wanted to go big, you either had to marry into one of these families, which is say be an aristocrat, or you had to kill some of them and take it from them. I mean, there really wasn't a lot of opportunity in that way. And all of a sudden, with the trading and the international trade that starts to flow in, these systems start to experience stress. And so lots of money, lots of art, lots of opportunity, lots of education starts to pick up in these trading capitals all over Europe. Um, the, the golden age of, of Holland is just one of the, is remarkable because it was so dense, such a small place. The city's not that big, and the money relative to the scale was just you know, just unbelievable. It's equivalent of like one of those trading fleets coming back from the East with spices. That was just, you know, like an IPO today. That was just a billion dollars sailing into Harbor one day. And the princes are like, great. You know, the merchant princes are going, whew, that ship didn't sink. Like that left four years ago or whatever. We haven't seen it. We haven't gotten, you know, a lot of emails from the captain, but here he is. The boats are coming back in. They're filled with cargo and we're going to be just even more fabulously rich than we were yesterday, right? So it's this, this boom time. Um, and, and of course, you get all the art is going on here. Lots of self-portraits are being made. And so, ooh, what does that mean? And think about this, too, that the traders were doing things like making self-portraits. Now, kings had done this before. And this was, an, you know, you would... Uh, this all you know Holbein in the English course, right? This you would put your big, beautiful painting of yourself up, and big being the key operative word often, that said, "Look, I'm rich, I'm powerful, I employ these people. Look at me." Well, now these merchants are like, "Hey, we can do that. We can we can hire some Rembrandts. You know, we've got we've got painters over here." And then it's like, "Ooh, well, if they can do self portraits." 
And this, by the way, this trickles all the way down to today. This is where the whole, you know, portrait picture taking of, of people, of taking, you know, family pictures and all this. It goes back to the nobility who used to be able to be the only ones who could afford to do these iconic paintings that said, here we are, we are rich, we are powerful, we are the Sforzas, or we are, you know, the Henry VIII, or we are whomever we are, boom, we are people. And then slowly, as this becomes more democratized today, you know, every, you know, they do it in school every year for all the kids because, hey, you know, we can do that now. But that, that's, it's an old holdover from this. It, that used to set status, but again, doesn't hold that much status now that the, all the wealthy princes are doing this. <clears throat> and then you get what I think is maybe the first huge crack in this, and this is the Reformation. Now, what the Reformation does besides stir everybody up and create all kinds of religious controversy and Martin Luther and all of this, um, it creates this question of which religion do you believe? Are you a Protestant or are you a Catholic? And then once you have the Protestant churches, all of a sudden it becomes this question of, well, which of the many, many and you know endlessly proliferating Protestant sects do you belong to? Right? Are you, are you a Calvinist? Are you a Lutheran? Are you just you know they just they're virtually untrackable in their multitude. So for for you know I don't know whatever count you want to say for a thousand years or eight hundred years up to the, the Reformation, the Church had presented a unified front. Now they didn't agree about anything. They argued about everything within the context of being Catholic. Oh, this is the right way to be Catholic. Oh, this is the right way to be Catholic. And that should be allowed. That should those people aren't Catholic. Those people are heretics. Okay. Great. That's all arguing about the best way to be Catholic, which is fine. Totally different thing to say, ooh, or maybe I belong to a different religion. Maybe your religion is wrong and this religion is right. And one of the things the Reformation did is opened up a lot of intellectual, emotional sort of crisis for people trying to decide, right? I mean, these people believe, not all of them, but the vast majority of them believed. I mean, they believed in the church. And so all of a sudden they're being asked to question their belief in the church and choose. And I don't think it's fundamentally appreciated enough because this is sort of the world we live in. Hey, choose any religion you want. You know, if you don't like this one, go get another one. If, if you don't want any, you don't have to have any. But this is that, that dawning of this huge transformation of what it means to be in the world, how you form an identity. Because when you choose God, that's very different from the God just being there. So if you are in ancient Babylon or in most other Sumeria, you had your late, you had your God, the God of the government. Now you might have your local hearth gods and all this. They're very much looser about the sort of proliferation of uh, small deities and all that. But basically, you were in an existing structure and you followed the rules or they would just kill you for heresy. This was not confusing in any way. Um, you know, this goes on Socrates, right? This is what happens with Socrates is he gets accused of offending the gods of Athens and that can't be tolerated. So, you know, the, the gods were just there. You lived with them. You might decide you want to do worship this one or that one. Their local hearth deities, usually families had different ones. You know, this is hugely variable, but that's the idea. All of a sudden, in the Reformation, for, you know, hundreds of thousands, millions of people in Europe, the question arises, well, are you a Catholic or a Protestant? 
Now, mostly this was solved by the princes or the, the local rulers. So it was the princes all over um, Protestant Europe were allowed to choose if they wanted to remain Catholic. And if they stayed Catholic, then the people who lived in their control area were supposed to stay Catholic too. But this didn't work very well. It turns out that just created as many problems as it solved. And so some cities would be allowed to stay. Oh, you can stay Protestant even though the principality is officially Catholic. Um, and half the farmers in this region are going to be Calvinist anyway, so we'll just turn a blind turn a blind eye. But it did create this fundamental question. Well, if I'm in a, a Catholic and I'm in a city that has decided it's going to be Protestant, do I change my faith? Do I pretend to be a Protestant and go along? Do I move? Many people moved. Do I become a secret Catholic? Right. This happened all over Holland, where they had these secret, you know. Um, churches where you could go and, 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 and have mass uh, performed for you, you know, in these you know, secret stairwells and all of this because, you know, it was really a core issue. But, it, but for the first time for most people, it forced them to ponder at least a little bit, well, what religion am I? And this is a titanic shift in building an identity. Choosing a god is no no small thing, essentially. And the biographies, letters, history books are filled with, you know, generally with all the important people, quote-unquote, who are just struggling mightily, you know, losing sleep, fasting, going on pilgrimages, just going and staying in monasteries, weeping, tearing their hair out, having visions, just trying to figure out what the hell do you do when you're suddenly thrust in this position of having to select God. I mean, it's, it's, it's this massive responsibility, and it sort of transforms everything. And that, I think, is iconic of what is to come, of all of the choices that are about to descend on people. And again, it's easier for us to forget how circumscribed most people's lives were. So I was trying to think of another uh, example of this, and I, and I thought, well, if you look at the line of someone like a of the composers just because I love music. And so, you know, you go Bach and Mozart, Handel, Beethoven, Chopin, Liszt, Haydn, right? These sort of generational uh, rollout of composers. Bach, just start with Bach, you know, the ever so famous Bach. You know, for most of his life, his travels were circumscribed because he was working for either religious authorities or either city or, you know, authorities that just wouldn't let him leave. You know, he had work to do. And so he he was always trying to get better jobs. But basically, he was generally not allowed to just up and travel He was because he was supposed to be there working seven days a week. That's what you did. He didn't compose what he wanted when he wanted. They just continually ordered compositions from him. What's amazing is he just continually delivered. I mean, the amount, if you look at some of a Bach biography, I mean, for the amount of just music he was writing every week, just like, oh, we got to have something for Sunday. We're going to have a mass. We're going to have a visiting dignitary, and then we're going to have an Easter service. And so we're going to, you know, just poured out the music under these circumstances. But he was just essentially a lowly paid or moderately lowly paid servant of the state or religious authorities for his whole life. And his travels were heavily circumstantial. He was not free to travel. He's not free to associate um, with whom he wanted to because, again, he's under religious authority much of the time and certainly not free to compose what he wanted because he had to compose what they told him when they told him. That was his job. If he didn't do it, he would either go to jail or um, 
he'd be fired, which is not good. And then you go to someone like Mozart, again, Freer traveled all over the place, but he worked within a court context. I mean, he spent most of his life trying to curry favor with the courts because that's where the money was. This is where the opportunity was. And so he wrote an endless series of letters of introduction and so on. I mean, you know, his, his work, of course, brilliant and masses of it, but generally done to try and either fulfill a, a payment that he had received or to get one to get some sort of uh, endowment. What he really wanted was a court position because that would give him security. And he was never able to really land one. It seemed to be just not, he just wasn't the kind of guy they were going to give that to. But even if you did land one, his near contemporary Haydn, um, you know, he's got maybe, one could argue, certainly one of the best, if not the best possible appointments with the Esterhazys. And so there you go. You've got the, you know, some of the wealthiest people. You've got your own orchestra. You've got all the opportunity you could possibly want, except you're just a house servant. When the Esterhazys decided to go summer someplace, they just picked up all their people and took them with them. They didn't take their families. And so Haydn and all the orchestra musicians and whomever else is in, in, in the retinue of the Esterhazys, they just have to leave home. And they just sit around waiting to be told to play music. And so Haydn is composing furiously and, you know, being had, training the orchestra up and getting performances ready. But he's he's owned and operated by the Esterhazy. He doesn't he can't like say, hey, I'm going to take a month off and go back to visit my wife. In fact, there's a famous symphony that he wrote, or I think it was a symphony. Um, anyway, a longer piece at the because all of the court or orchestra was upset that they had been away from home for so long and they couldn't visit their families. Sat at the end of the uh, symphony, the the members of the orchestra's parts die one by one. And when they finished, they would put their music down and snuff the candles they were using to read the music and walk out one by one. And it was sort of Haydn's subtle way of saying, hey, you know, maybe it's time to leave, right? Let's sort of, let's, the, the orchestra is getting restless. My job is getting hard. And, and so uh, later in his life, of course, he did become independent of them. Um, and then you can go all the way to someone like uh, Chopin and Liszt, again, generations later, where they are breaking this this sort of format where Liszt became famous playing for public audiences. He played, you know, well over a thousand large scale venues. Um, and but even as late as Liszt is, you're still looking at someone who would then settle down with some countess and go off to an estate and live there for a couple of years and compose and not have to worry about that. So, And Chopin played almost exclusively very small venues, and mostly he just played in drawing rooms for the upper middle class and the nobility. And so, but what if you look at their lives, what you see is even these famous people who, by all accounts, were highly educated, um, relatively speaking, very well paid, had positions of privilege, again, relative to the general population, because most people are 70% of the population is still just serfs out there in the mud. Um, you know, so they're doing really well. Even all that education, all this brilliance. I mean, look at that list of, 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 of human genius and potential. They spent most of their time as servants or curring favor with the nobility because that was just what you had to do. There weren't a lot of other opportunities. And until you get to someone like List, who just really broke through and became his own man or Beethoven, 
uh, just because he was so irascible, he was able to pull that off. Again, life's still highly circumscribed. So you have read these biographies and autobiographies of people's painters at this time, and, and this is what you'll see. And then comes the Enlightenment. Again, blame the Enlightenment. And what you see here, uh, in, in just read a very nice um, book on the history of the English Enlightenment called um, The World Made New. And it's a very, very, very good history, by the way, if someone's interested in it. It emphasizes particularly sort of the scientific end as opposed to the literary end. He criticizes Peter Gay's three-volume biography of the Enlightenment for emphasizing the literary side, which makes England look less important. But, you know, sort of those turf wars aside, because I think the Peter Gay's the volumes are really uh, excellent as well. In fact, I love those. But this one is, is quite good. Again, the world made new. He says that if you want to know what the Enlightenment is, I think it's the second or third chapter, it can be boiled down to one word, and that is emancipation, <clears throat> right? What, what these people were trying to do was liberate themselves. And what are they trying to liberate themselves from? First and foremost, the rule of the kings and the rule of the church. Again, this is a the Reformation is part of this, the rise of, of education and reason. But I want to liberate myself so I have freedom of conscience, a freedom to believe what I want to believe and think what I want to believe. By extension, then you get the freedom of the press, which is to say, having thought it, now I want to be able to write it down. I want to have freedom from the interference of the government in my work and my thinking. I don't want censorship. Again, that's freedom of the press. The king may not like what I think, and so they're going to try to censor that. I want free freedom to worship as I see fit. And of course, a huge argument, particularly in England, where you've had a whole series of of vicious civil wars and, and political intrigues all about the question of Catholicism, um, Ireland, hello, <clears throat> you know, William of Orange, all of these sorts of problems have been rolling around there for quite some time. And so this is a very vexed notion in England. But emancipation from, from the uh, traditional beliefs, emancipation from the oversight of the king, emancipation from the rule of church authorities, who still had extraordinary power over the people's everyday lives. And we inherit this. We inherit this and we go, wow, how great is this? You know, the, the Declaration of Independence is a document written by the Enlightenment. I mean, it is simply uh, one of the great summations of these ideals. We hold these truths to be self-evident. All men are created equal. Life, liberty, pursuit of happiness, these sorts of things. This is just enlightenment, enlightenment, enlightenment. Great, we know this stuff. Yay, enlightenment. Ah, oh, the downside, the problem side. Here's where, uh, you know, every, every every up is a down, every, you know, sort of that, that uh, oppositional nature. Each one of these liberations creates a fundamental problem. As I mentioned, if I have freedom of conscience and I can say, you know, worship as I so see fit, well, how do I decide? And I think this is a big, important decision. How do I decide which God to worship? How do I know I've made the right decision? Do I appeal to my community? Of course, everybody knows the problem there. Right? This is not a confusing. They're, they're clear on this. If I'm free to associate with whomever I wish, right, this is assault on the aristocracy, then how do I choose to whom I should associate, with whom I should associate? This Every time you create one of these liberties, you create a corresponding un fundamental problem for figuring out who you are, how you're supposed to behave in the world. 
And so the, 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 I think the freedom from the church is much clearer, but the freedom from the king is basically a freedom from the hierarchy of the social order. Because with no king, you can get undo the arist- aristocracy, you can get rid of arbitrary rule of law. They didn't want no government. They weren't, um, a few were, by the way, of course, the Enlightenment thinkers were all over the map. But primarily what they were focused on is egalitarianism, right? Saying, oh, okay, we want rule by the people for the people. Everybody, egality, fraternity, right? That liberty, egality, fraternity, right? The fraternal band of people ruling together with equality, the flattening of that. Great. So if we flatten that, we create a democracy, rule of the people. Well, are all the people equal? How do I know who I am? If everybody's equal and we're all the same, how do I function as an individual? Where do I fit? How should I dress? How should I act? Who should I model my behavior on? Not surprisingly, the big, one of the big boom industries of this period is, of course, questions about manners and questions about style. The, the Tatler, right, the famous magazines and broadsides that are coming out are really, how should I behave? You know, what is the best way to cultivate myself? How should I present myself as an individual? So it's all these questions we take for granted, but, but you have to remember that before, if you were the noble person. You knew who you were by definition. It was a legal thing. It was, it, it was like knowing you're a citizen of the United States, right? It's just, it was a legal position of existence. So you didn't have to worry about it. Um, if you traveled everywhere you went, people would know who you were because that's, I mean, we do, you know, heraldry, those big symbols, yeah, right. I mean, there, there's a big symbol on the side of your carriage that says who you are. Everybody knows who you are. Even if they don't know you, they know who you are. If nothing else, they know you're an important person. You're a noble person. Watch out for them. If you were a peasant, you could not travel. And, and that was, you know, legally prescribed. You couldn't move around. So everybody knew who you were then, again, because you never went anyplace where people didn't know you. You were chattel, which leaves the sort of people between those poles. And when that group became sufficiently large, sufficiently wealthy, and sufficiently uh, sort of organized, in the loosest sense of the word organized, if I can say that, that they had power, well, then all of the questions of identity arise. And remember, from the first lecture, this is not optional for human beings. We need to know who we are and how we fit in with the people that surround us. And every single freedom, which is that the Enlightenment pursued, which has been achieved to varying degrees, creates with it a corresponding set of problems about how do I know who I am? Who should I associate with? What kind of feedback should I be looking for? When do I know or how do I know I'm living my life correctly? What does it mean to be an individual? Where does a sense of identity come from? And... Ipso facto, it should come as no surprise that the Enlightenment thinkers wrote book after book, article after article, you know, exploring precisely this question. Hume, uh, Locke, uh, they, they, just Voltaire wrote about this. Everybody is writing about these questions because they arise immediately when you start creating these sorts of liberties that we now take more or less for granted. 
But I just want to emphasize that the problem arises with the liberty. And so you immediately start saying, well, how do I know who I am? How do I know who I'm better than? Let's, you know, put a boil it down to how they ask the question. So not surprisingly, and perfectly related to this, is the Enlightenment is one of the foundations of our modern conception of racism. Because once they got rid of those others, or didn't get rid of them, of course, once they started to undermine and weaken those other social hierarchies, then they started asking, well, then how do I know who I'm better at? And how do I know who's better than me? And then how do we rank these things? And what the hell's going on here? And one of the things they came up with was, oh, race. It must be by race. So the French race is superior to, for instance, the German race. That was just perfectly obvious to the French. Um, of course, the whole notion that France at that time or any time was a race is totally and completely absurd, as all theories about race are. But this was one of the, the, the big ones, right? And the notion that, oh... Ah, you know, slavery, those, the, you know, slavery, no, notice we're, we're at the emancipation of man now, so we're trying to free everybody, but then you're like, oh, well, are those, are those Muslims, are those, are those guys, are they, you know, those, those people over there, are they really equal? How about women? What about women? So all of a sudden, you know, here comes the, the enlightenment female thinkers who are starting to say, hey, you know, we think women can think. So you're freeing the women up to have these opportunities to think, and one of the things they think is that they're equal egality. And so other people are like all of a sudden very powerfully saying, no, 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 no. Wait a second. Wait a second. No, when we said equality, we didn't mean that much equality. Right. And so then, then you're like, well, what do you base it on? How do you base uh, the, the ranking of humans if it's not an aristocracy, which we know is bad? Get rid of that. Well, then, of course, they said it was reason, right? Man has to have reason, one of the arguments many Enlightenment thinkers pursued. And they said, well, clearly, women just do not have the capacity to reason to the level that men have, and therefore they are simply inferior. This is a very common line of argumentation during this period. Um, of course, just ridiculous, but nonetheless, notice the impulse here. Well, we've gotten rid of these hierarchical systems that allowed us to know who we were because we did not like them. But now we don't have a system that allows us to know who we are, which we also do not like. So now we need to impose a new system and we just don't know what to do. And so we're coming up with things like, oh, you know, the, the Islamic world is inferior. African slaves can't think. Well, African slaves, Africans can't think generally. Um, women are third rate. Uh, you know, the Greeks were white, which is one of my favorite notions. All of a sudden, the Greek got promoted to being white, or at least the ancient Greeks got promoted to being white. No one cared about the contemporary Greeks. So, you know, all of these racial theories and hierarchy issues really come racing right to the fore, right? Just like here they are. Why are they here now? Because identity questions are here now. Women start saying they want equality. Ah, well, we'll have women's schools and men's schools and we get co-ed schools. All these problems ensue. And so right at the birth of these big outbreaks of independence, of emancipation, liberty, freedom, yay, what do you get? You get the exact equal amount of cry about, well, well, who the hell are we then? And what are we doing? How do we know what's right? How should we dress? Uh, who gets to dress what way? How about freedom of travel? That was a new one. People are starting to move around at a really surprising clip. And this threw everybody off because it just hadn't been the case before. People were just, it was not legal 
um, for people to travel around. Like I said, one of my Humboldt, the, the great explorer, scientist, thinker, you know, had a just all around amazing human being, um, actually could not travel into Russia. They would not give him a, a pass to do that. And there are several other places that they had a really hard time getting into. And he was a wealthy, famous nobleman. And so he was able to bribe, cajole, had all the right connections. And still, it was tough for him to get into some places. And that's, you know, we're talking into the 1800s now. So this is pretty late. So you go back to the 1700s, 1600s. Um, you know, it's really a, a trick. I mean, you, depending on who you are, where you are, to be able to travel to any extensive, uh, in any extensive way was pretty rare to almost impossible. So now people start to move around, which means, oh, now we're seeing more strangers. Cities are getting bigger, uh, which means, okay, now we're also being subject to more strangers. And some of those strangers are coming from further away because international trade is picking up and so on. And so right here at the origins of the modern world, the problems and issues of identity start to boil up that are easy to take for granted. And we think now, okay, we're sort of, I think, at some sort of extreme expression of this. But I want to start there because uh, before we start looking at what all this means uh, today is to just recognize that it was recognized immediately by the thinkers who are arguing for and achieving emancipation, who are seeing these freedoms of thought and mind delivered, simultaneously they're having to stop and go, but now wait a second, how do I know who I am? How do I know what's the right way to act? How do, how, whom, with whom should I associate myself? How do I know who are good people and bad people if these old systems are starting to break down? In fact, I'm breaking them down, right? It's not that they are breaking down, it's that I'm throwing rocks at it, now it's broken down, and I'm like, ooh, now what do I do, right? So a huge part of this is the social uh, fabric is being dramatically altered. Uh, I would say to the good, liberty, okay? It's not that I'm not pro-liberty, but now a problem that we're still trying to figure out how to address, if, if anything, trying to figure out how to address even more so, um, comes to the fore. And, but notice what happens also at the same time. This is when you get these all these societies, Royal Society of Sciences, the French Academy of Arts and Sciences, or the French, I think it's just called it the French Academy, which become secular means of getting the stamp of approval, right? So if I'm a member of the French Academy, then I'm important. And I know I'm important because I have the official imprimatur of importance, and so all of these new ways of being recognized as being a significant individual through uh, academies and societies and awards and uh, letters of merit, uh, fame, fame becomes important for this because that's also a way of, of assuring that you matter, all immediately come to just, they just blow up. Like, oh, all this, where did the Royal Academy of Sciences come from? Holy cow, that, that was amazing. Or the British Royal Society, right? The French why, and why the need for that? Also, well, again, when you start losing those other status things. Simultaneously, so of course, this is all being driven also by you know, wealth, increasing size of the cities, increasing numbers of educated people because the need for educated people, spread of literacy, and then the freedom of the press. But oh, how do you know, people are going to read the wrong things? So we've got to limit what they can read so they only read the right things. All that comes to the fore. But a couple other intellectual uh, revolutions have happened, and this also trickles down, again, hard for us to 
quite wrap our minds around this, but right when you're getting the Reformation, you get these sorts of people are having to pick their own God, and, and there's the feeling of responsibility for this, and there's a vexed social context in which that's taking place. Um, you get a couple of other revolutions, and one or two that I'd like to just mention briefly, because I, I think we lose track of how destabilizing this was for people. One is the notion of the Copernican Revolution, um, that basically for a long, long, long time, everybody just figured, uh, you know, for a couple of thousand years, that the Earth was the center of the universe. And so everything revolved around us. And so God on earth is the center of everything. And we're right there with God. And so it's all us all the time. We're right in the middle. And the Copernican revolution was a real thing to, to recognize that, hey, wait a second. It doesn't all revolve around us. Quite literally, it doesn't all re revolve around the earth. It's a, you know, sort of play on words, but it's the decentering. Like, wait a second, what do you mean we're not the middle of everything? I mean, if, if you go back to the Greeks, they just thought this was the most obvious thing. The Earth is in the middle. You know, you have all the orbits above us, and then you have the perfect spheres, and this is just how it is. We're in the middle. We're not in the middle. Hey, wait a second. Wait a second. Second, and I mentioned this a little bit with uh, societies before the theory of histories began to really develop, and that is this notion of deep time, that time and history go back. At first, they just realized thousands of years. Then it dawned on them that it was tens of thousands of years. And then eventually the geologists were like waving their hands in the back and going, you know what? It's looking like it might be billions of years. And it's, it's hard to imagine, but I believe it's sometime around 1770. I should look this up. I know it's the 18th century. Um, a French guy whose name just popped out of my mind and comes up with the notion of a timeline of creating a you know, what we know what timelines are because we're familiar with them, but we forget that that was invented. Well, there was a madness. There was just a cultural explosion of interest in timelines because all of a sudden people are like, oh, we can lay out the history of the world and see it before us or the history of horses or the history of the church or the history of agriculture or the history of London, whatever, it didn't matter. You can put anything in a line, put dates on it and go, wow, look at this. And one of the things you could do again, a little later as geology comes to the fore, you can say, hey, was it a million years ago or was it a billion years ago or maybe it'd been three billion years ago, right? The, and so the time horizon awareness of the average individual just increased exponentially from a world in which everything is just cyclical, there is no real sense of the past, it was in the present, futures. It just, they did not have our sense of time. Everything you write, or you look at what they were doing, it, um, in fact, it's a lot difficult to date a lot of things accurately from historical records um, because they were just so loose on time a lot. Chinese much better, by the way. Chinese vastly superior on this. But in, in Western civilization, in particular Islamic civilization, it's just you know, often just, just makes no sense to us. Made perfect sense to them, makes no sense to us. But ancient world in particular, you know, again, so cyclical. Just no sense of time having this depth. One thing this does, by the way, by expanding the sense of your world both in time, also it makes the, your moment very small, right? Bigger the history you're involved in, the smaller the moment that you live in. And, you know, how important are you? How important is the king if he's the, 
you know, one king amongst all of these others, and he hasn't ruled for that long. He hasn't done anything really impressive now that we look at the history books and compare him to the other guys. You know, it's it sort of created this whole different sensibility about the world itself. So these two, like the advent of time and then really the advent of deep time, but the and and the decentering of Earth from the center of the universe, you know, this is a profound, it's not, you know, undercutting of um, people's sense of where they are, who they are, where they belong, how they exist in the world. And, you know, that is profound. It's hard to put your finger on, but all the evidence is that this is really, people start trying to find a way to answer these questions. Um, yeah. So blame the Enlightenment because as they create all these theories of, Freedom, emancipation, liberty, the rule of reason, putting man, uh, man-centric, all the great things that we take from the Enlightenment, simultaneously they're raising all these questions about, well, how do we know who we are? Do people have an identity? Is there such a thing as race? What are the, how, do we, how do we rank uh, human civilizations? How do we know who's really doing the right thing? What do, how do we create a moral order? What's the basis of a good society? All, you know, all the Enlightenment writing basically is these two, you know, these are almost two sides of it. Like, here's all this freedom, and then, holy shit, what do we do with all this freedom, and how do we reconceptualize ourselves within this context? They give a lot of answers. None of them actually work out that well, but having raised the problem, they, they did try to uh, address it. And so now we move on from that world. We are living in that world. And uh, next, I want to start looking at specific aspects of the liberties that we have inherited and the problems associated with them and how they've been exacerbated um, in our own. The, the technology of the last 50 to 100 years has simply taken all the difficulties that were raised by the emancipations of the Enlightenment and multiplied them by an unbelievable factor. And as I remember, as I mentioned in the first lecture, it's extraordinary how well we're doing given how many problems we've been presented with that we don't seem to have any good way to answer. So that's, you know, I want to repeat that because it's, boy, when we get, get there, it is troubling. So first, whatever millennia, first, you know, million years evolving as primates, <clears throat> group identity, constantly reinforced every single day. We have a very circumscribed sense of space. We know where we belong because it's our, our area. And we know who belongs in there, and that can shift a little bit. We can move around a little bit, but it's pretty stable for pretty much all of our lives. Hunter-gathering societies, a little larger, a little larger sense of area, but not that big. We still know everybody. We're still constantly being reinforced for our positions, our contributions, um, to the to the culture, and there's a lot of sort of monitoring of that that always goes on in hunter gathering societies. Agrarian society now your identity is enforced at the you know spear tip or tip of a sword. Most people are slaves, so you don't really again problem of identity not there. And the people who aren't slaves are very circumscribed. If you're a priest, you have to do priestly things. If you don't, you're not a priest, and that's bad. And so for whatever that was. So million years of primate evolution, pick a date, couple hundred thousand years, maybe a hundred thousand years of hunter-gatherer evolution, 10,000 years of agrarian evolution. And then boom, here you go. 
Forget all that stuff. Forget that millions of years of social and cultural and hierarchical organizations and group belonging and sense of identity. Screw that. We want emancipation. Yay! Or damn. Huh, we'll see. It's a little of both, actually. It's a little of both. So thank you very much. And coming up next, we will look at some of the specific problems related to our liberties. <laughs> 